I'm Graham Lynch, this is Comms Day Live, and welcome to the show. We held Comms Day Summit 2020 this week. We held it as a hybrid event, uh, with delegates coming both in person at the Vorton Hotel in Sydney, and also virtually over the web. About one third of our delegates actually came in the flesh to the hotel. The other two thirds joined us online. That ratio was reversed for the speakers, most of whom came in person. So in this special episode of Comms Day Live, we're going to be taking a good look at what happened at Comms Day Summit. It generated a lot of telecom news, and we'll be hearing in this episode from Shadow Communications Minister Michelle Rowland, Telstra CFO Vicky Brady, Focus Head of Government and Special Projects Michael Ackland, and also our editors Simon Ducks and Rowan Pearce, who will be looking at some of the other highlights of the event. But we'll kick off with Communications Minister Paul Fletcher. His keynote speech featured a storming defence of the MBN's multi-technology mix and provided a justification for the recently announced GPON upgrade in the FTTN footprint. To be clear, there always has been and there remains a fundamental difference between the Coalition's approach and Labor's policy of an all-fibre-to-the-premises rollout. Central to our approach is designing the network rollout to best meet customer demand, consistent with the approach we've followed since coming to government in 2013. NBN's 2012 corporate plan, prepared under the Labor government, projected that by 2020, 90% of all NBN subscribers in a fully fibred network would choose plans of 100 megabits per second or less, and that around 40% of these subscribers we're expected to choose a 12-1 service. In other words, compared to the Coalition's plan, Labor's plan was to spend $30 billion more and take six years longer to roll out, all to serve a 10% cohort of high-end users in the fixed-line network. A small group would get great service in first class, but the majority of Australians were not even allowed onto the plane. Labor's approach was incredibly wasteful of both time and money. It rolled fibre to every home, whether or not the customer actually wanted a broadband service, let alone a speed high enough that fibre is needed. Our approach in this next upgrade is much more prudent. To start with, we're building on what's already there. In fibre to the node areas, on average, there's more than 10 kilometres of fibre in the ground to each node. Next, we'll roll fibre down the street in the footprint that's being upgraded from fibre to the node to fibre to the premises. But very importantly, we will only build a fibre lead-in to the customer's home if the customer orders a high-speed service. This saves about $1,500 per premises for those homes in the fibre to the node footprint not needing or wanting higher speeds. Another example of how we've been much more efficient in the use of capital is the hybrid fibre coax network. This network covers 2.5 million premises. Already, around 70% of these premises can receive speeds of 250 megabits per second. With modest upgrades, ultra-fast speeds close to 1 gigabit per second will be available across the entire HFC network by 2023. But Labor's plan was to junk the entire HFC network and instead instead build fibre to the premises over the top of it. 
Under our plan, the HFC and fibre to the curb footprints, a total of 4 million premises, are being upgraded to gigabit capability for $500 million. This equates to $125 per premises. A fourth myth is that our approach has been wasteful because we first built fibre to the node and now we have come back and built fibre to the premises. Only someone who who does not understand the time value of money would say this. Our approach got premises connected much more quickly and hence generated cash flows much earlier than under Labor's plan. By 2023, the fibre to the node network will have generated $9 billion in revenues, cost $7.3 billion to build and $1 billion to operate. Fibre to the node will have effectively paid for itself and will continue to provide a very good service to many millions of premises for many years, generating cash flows well into the future. Now, later on in his speech, the minister went into a deep dive explanation on why he thinks the $4.5 billion upgrade makes sense and can be justified as financially prudent. Developing a rational strategy, executing it diligently and keeping a focus on the needs of the end user and the benefits that fast broadband can bring. Financial markets commentator Stephen Bartholomew's uh, summed up the recent $4.5 billion network investment announcement, saying the following, quotes, The investments that will enable around 75% of homes and businesses in the MBN's fixed-line footprint to access speeds of between 500 megabits per second and 1 gigabit per second is perfectly aligned with the strategy Mr Turnbull outlined when he tore up Labor's blueprint for the network in 2013. It's a demand-driven and commercial approach. The incremental investment will add not just extra revenue, but profitable revenue, close quotes. A key feature of this investment is that there is no impact to the Commonwealth budget. Government funding in the NBN remains capped at $49 billion, $29.5 billion of equity, $19.5 billion of debt. The company is now generating strong revenues and operating cash flows, allowing it to borrow from private debt markets. Annual revenue has grown from $61 million in financial year 2014 to $3.8 billion in the financial year just concluded. Record low interest rates provide the company with a low-cost pathway to borrow against future free cash flows, underpinned by the strength of projected earnings and the success of NBN's inaugural long-term private debt raising completed earlier this year. NBN Co has built a strong track record of technological innovation and operational delivery. There are good reasons for the network choices it has made. One reason we chose to continue using the HFC network is that there's a very big installed base of HFC networks globally, particularly in the US. This in turn means continuing technological innovation and cost reduction from vendors. In making extensive use of fibre to the node, we recognise that this technology has been deployed widely in very large markets in Britain and Europe and will be used for many years to come. Again, this will mean continued improvements in what the vendors make available. Globally, there is plenty of work being done on fibre to the curb, 
with operators like British Telecom testing it extensively. But to date, NBN is one of the very few operators that has commenced a commercial rollout of the technology. And NBN is also one of the first companies in the world to deploy a fixed wireless network at scale. Another marker of NBN's success is the continued strong growth in the amount of data Australians are using. Since 2010, the average monthly download per fixed line customer has grown more than 30 times from less than 10 gigabytes per month to over 330 gigabytes today. Now, not everyone agrees with the positive sentiments of the Minister. Unsurprisingly, Shadow Communications Minister Michelle Rowland shared her thoughts on how the NBN was tracking, and she drew quite different conclusions. The original fibre to the node rollout was supposed to deliver a cash flow positive rollout by 2020-2021. We now appear to be looking at 2024 or 25 at best. The key question at the time of this analysis in 2019 was what relevance did these findings and the nuances of the analysis have for future policy? The first insight was it could be quite difficult for the Liberals to run off and sell the NBN to institutional investors unless they wanted to closely involve Telstra in any future sale. Now, Telstra is unique in that it's the only potential owner that could provide the Liberals with cash flow relief because of its infrastructure synergies and its singular ability to restructure contractual payments between itself and NBN Co. This might explain why Minister Fletcher performed another backflip in May, telling the AFR the Morrison government was again open to the possibility of selling the NBN to Telstra if the bankers could figure a structure out, despite telling the Sydney Morning Herald the opposite a year earlier. But it was the second insight about the weak cash flow position and its consequences that was arguably more relevant to where we are today. MBN co-management do not have the same incentives as their private sector counterparts to manage costs or allocate capital efficiently. This is not a criticism of management, and I want to acknowledge their accomplishments and professionalism with the volume rollout and their rapid response during the bushfire season and COVID-19. But the reality is that since 2014, the Abbott-Turnbull-Morrison governments have tolerated an $11 billion cost blowout then a new $8 billion cost blowout, then a further $2 billion cost blowout, and the latest $6 billion increase. If your shareholder is willing to tolerate never-ending cost blowouts, and if you are financially rewarded for meeting fake revenue cut targets, then clearly your incentive is to keep spending money. It appeared likely, irrespective of which side of politics formed government following the 2019 election, that senior executives would have strong incentives to recommend wide-scale fibre upgrades given the 5G risk and what this meant for an already weak cash flow position. The NBN backflip was not an epiphany about market demand or a surprise response to the need for fast broadband arising from COVID-19. It was a predetermined surrender to seven years of Liberal incompetence. This brings me to the specifics of what has been announced. A month ago, the government announced NBN would use $2.9 billion to provide 2 million households who are currently on fibre to the node with access to fibre. A modest figure given the rhetoric associated with the announcement. However, the fine print published after the media announcement appears to provide some additional context. First, the cost of the NBN had increased a further $6 billion 
to 57 billion. Second, this revised $57 billion cost currently assumes only 400,000 households, that is one in every 10 premises in the copper footprint, are budgeted to actually assumed to get a fibre connection to their homes between now and 2024. This is based on the size of the fibre to the node footprint being about 4.2 million premises. If these one in 10 figures do in fact play out, and even I'm skeptical this government could be that hopeless, that will be nothing short of a farce. Meanwhile, Australia's largest telco, Telstra, had a clear message for MBN Co and government. CFO Vicky Brady was not happy about the controversial CBC usage charge and wanted something done about it. MBN Co's decision to offer temporary relief during COVID was very welcome. As we all learned last week, MBN Co will now remove that discount in stages over coming months. They have also offered temporary changes to entice more customers onto higher speed plans. The truth is, this latest round of discounts and bundling only increases the complexity, uncertainty and operational costs involved in retailing MBN services. At best, MBN Co's latest contortions are temporary solutions to a permanent problem. At worst, they are a distraction from the more urgent and important task of developing a well-functioning market with long-term financial sustainability. I know that some observers have dismissed complaints from retailers, including Telstra, as self-serving. We have been very transparent about the fact that the current structure of the fixed-line market is not financially sustainable for us. We've also been very upfront about our need to continue to bring our costs down, which we are acting on with urgency. However, even then, the long-term economics of reselling the MBN are barely sustainable. Ultimately, if our vision is for an industry delivering greater experiences for customers through continued investment and competition, businesses, including retailers, need to earn a sustainable return. Pricing that discourages retailers and customers from getting the highest benefit from the MBN is not the only distortion in the fixed market. Right now, our economy needs investment, but unsustainably high wholesale prices are encouraging businesses to invest in technology that helps them avoid using MBN's infrastructure in search of higher returns. We can see this in the rush to maximise the use of 5G fixed wireless or the overbuilding of MBN's fibre with private networks. This is an inefficient use of capital when the infrastructure needed to deliver super-fast broadband already exists. In truth, Australia's telecommunications industry has limited capital and is already struggling to earn average returns above the cost of that capital. Last year, research from PwC showed the average return on invested capital for telecommunications was just 7% in 2016, having declined from 12% in 2012. Our own analysis confirms that returns for the industry have been dropping significantly for the past five years, with the average now down to 6% per annum. 
And Australia's fourth largest telco, Focus, had its own take. Michael Ackland, who heads up special projects at the company, believes a massive Matt truck is hurtling towards the economics of the Australian telecom market in the form of the various global Leosat networks that are launching and beginning operations within the next year or so. A number of global technology giants are racing to deploy global LEO satellite networks which are expected to revolutionise connectivity in both regional and even metro areas. Google, Amazon, SpaceX and at least half a dozen other companies have announced programs to deploy LEO satellite constellations. Canadian Telsat LEO with 300 satellites. Project Cupita, the brainchild of Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos with over 3,000 satellites. Starlink from Elon Musk's SpaceX company, which has long-term plans to launch as many as 42,000 satellites. Mark Zuckerberg's Facebook has confirmed that it's working on its own LeoSat project. Google won't be left out, and it has plans for a constellation with 1,000 satellites. To get some idea of why this technology is so exciting, you only need to have a look at some of the tests that have been tried. In February this year, a company called Link successfully connected a standard unmodified mobile phone to one of its four cell towers in the sky satellites. Link are currently launching one satellite every six months to create a global mobile network. Bloomberg has even reported that Apple has a secret team working on a satellite technology for the iPhone maker that would beam internet services directly to devices, bypassing wireless networks. Just think about that for a moment. How long do you think before Samsung will be? This satellite technology is so vastly superior to existing satellites that the performance is more comparable to terrestrial networks. Real-world tests using low-orbit satellites have demonstrated round-trip latencies of between 40 and 50 milliseconds. This is all made possible by lowering the orbit of satellites from around 36,000 kilometres to around 550 kilometres. This brings down latencies, gives higher power, and the download speeds are well above 100 megabits, and this has already been demonstrated in LEOSAT deployments. Their speed's comparable with what we're, we're seeing at the moment on fibre and 5G. Gartner analysts have said that LEO sets have the potential for a dramatic social and commercial impact, not only by providing high-speed connectivity to areas currently underserved by fixed and mobile infrastructure, but also for providing a real alternative to 5G. The applications offered by LEO sets are even likely to replicate offerings that LTE and 5G thought were their own. Railway operators, they currently install for LTE networks for signalling, but LEO satellites could easily replace this without a single base station having to be built. In fact, many of the Internet of Things applications being touted as dependent on 5G could well be more economically served by LEOSATs, such as transport and logistics, autonomous vehicles and other in-vehicle data applications. Why would Mercedes when seeking coverage for its autonomous cars, sign up 172 different agreements with local operators around the world for patchy, incomplete coverage when they could have one contract with a worldwide provider.
taking a look at the Comms Day Summit in this special edition of the Comms Day Live podcast. And we're joined by Simon Ducks, the chief editor of Comms Day, who uh, spent a couple of days deeply immersed in the, uh, the speeches and the presentations of the event. And I thought we'd um, start off, Simon, by taking a look at what Ericsson's uh, local head of operations, Emilio Romeo, had to say. Um, particularly make some big uh, observations and predictions about what's happening in the global 5G market. That's right, Graham. It was uh, a uh, plethora of uh, surveys that Emilio put together and came up with some interesting statistics about how 5G is going globally and also some potential opportunities in the Australian market. He suggested that we're looking at uh, new 5G connections are hitting 500,000 per day now uh, globally, which is uh, quite a statistic. And then uh, he did a little bit of work on talking about what uh, certain, what he called considerers. These are people that are potentially looking at new applications, what they might be willing to pay in the Australian market or not. And uh, it was uh, some interesting stuff came out of that because he suggested that around 75% of these so-called considerers do suggest that they intend to spend or invest in at least one digital service over the next 12 months. And that's pretty important because if you look at how 5G is going so far, uh, the Australian operators are not able to charge a premium for it. And uh, so what Emilio actually talked about was some examples in the Korean market around uh, things like uh, 360 degree cameras with Korea Telecom uh, and adding that as a service and managing to charge another 24 euros for that per month. And uh, also uh, LG was providing VR content and uh, that was packaged up with an extra $5 a month uh, in Korea as well. So potentially some business models that might be able to increase 5G ARPUs going forward. Now, on that note, um, one of Ericsson's customers in Australia is Optus, and their head of networks, Lambo Kanagaratnam, uh, also gave a presentation at Comms Day Summit where he told us all about his millimetre wave plans. That's right. Uh, it, Lambo was, uh, ran through a lot of uh, stuff of what we'd already heard and uh, discussed on uh, previous podcasts around uh, carrier aggregation. But this time he uh, did talk about the fact that they're in active testing now uh, of MM Wave uh, Spectrum in three cities uh, already, which is uh, Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane which we would expect, uh, but it is nice to hear that they're uh, going through and doing that. And uh, he also took some time to explain how important dynamic spectrum sharing is going to be when they roll out, and that's how you can actually manage uh, the spectrum much more efficiently between the 4G and the 5G networks. Okay, moving on. Uh, Telstra uh, released its Digital Inclusion Index a week ago or so, and uh, their chief counsel, Lindor Stoyles, used her presentation at Comms Day Summit to fill us in on it. That's right. The, uh, they, what uh, Telstra called it was their fifth annual Australian Digital Inclusion Index, uh, which they pulled together with RMIT, Swinburne Universities, and using a lot of data from Roy Morgan. And essentially it measures access, affordability, and digital ability in Australia. And uh, it was interesting because they uh, pointed out that while digital, in, uh, digital inclusion is increasing, uh, the rate of increase has dropped to 1.1 points. And 
Telstra essentially suggesting that this is coming down to the fact that uh, things are less affordable. So it's an affordability issue. And uh, Lindell actually said that while the absolute cost of internet data has gone down, households are now spending more money on internet services due to greater usage and more devices. And so the average spend on these services has generally increased faster than household income. And of course, uh, one of the things that she suggested is contributing to this is the uh, what she termed the elephant in the room is the uh, 40% CVC uplift and the cost of wholesale pricing on MBNCO. And uh, she was suggesting that this is uh, going to impact affordability when it's removed in the coming months. Sounds like a good reason to buy a Telstra wireless broadband service. On that note, Simon, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks, Graham. Moving on, this is the Comms Day Live special podcast looking at the Comms Day Summit 2020. And uh, we're joined by Rowan Pierce, the executive editor of Comms Day. Hey, Graham. Um, we'll start off. Looking at the Australian Communications and Media Authority, whose deputy chair and CEO, Karina Chapman, had a warning for errant service providers and a threat to the current co-regulatory arrangements. Tell us more, Rowan. Yeah, so a bit of a bit of a bombshell there from the the ACMA, I thought, um, to drop during the summit. Which is basically um, the ACMA has said that there are limits to how useful um, co-regulation is at the moment. So this is particularly in the context of Part C of the Consumer Safeguards Review. And so ACMA has told the government that it actually wants the power of direct regulation for um, what it considers essential safeguards. So issues around billing. Uh, complaints handling and price and non-price related performance. And one thing that, uh, that Craner actually mentioned was that um, the ACMA wanted the power to actually deregister retail service providers when they don't comply with consumer protection safeguards, which I think um, a, a lot of people might um, take issue with, really. Okay, now the Comms Day Summit also heard from TPG Telecom CEO Inaki Beretta. Um, he gave a very interesting update on what his company is doing in the 5G market. Yeah, so it was, it was a really interesting speech from Inaki, I thought. And it was obviously, it was his first kind of um, public speech since the merger had taken place. Like, they did have the half-year results uh, briefing, but this was a much broader kind of overview of um, where they're going. So I thought it was, it was quite interesting on a number of levels. Like, so when it came to 5G, I guess the background for TPG is like, one, they had to deal with the impact of the Huawei ban on their rollout. And um, Secondly, was obviously the kind of delay to the merger caused by the ACCC um, opposing it. So that they've moved past that. So now um, the big thing in Anaki's speech when it came to 5G was he said that TPG will begin offering a fixed wireless product in the first half of 2021, which means we'll be in a situation where all, all three um, mobile operators have a 5G fixed wireless product in the market, which actually is quite interesting because we'll start to get maybe a bit of a sense of like, you know, is... Is it going to kind of eat into the MBN market share? And I think actually the, the other thing, another speaker at the summit obviously was um, Dan Lloyd, the head of wholesale at, um, at TPG, who also said that TPG would offer a wholesale 5G service, and that could be a potentially like mobile and um, and wholesale. I'm sorry, mobile and fixed. Okay, and finally, um, MNF CEO Renee Sugo 
used his keynote speech to draw attention to a topic that doesn't often get that much attention, and that's how numbering works. And he um, made a call for a more sympathetic regime for virtual numbering. Yeah, so, so Rene is actually a pretty frequent speaker at Comms Day Summits, and it's always interesting to see what he's got to say. So um, he had a couple of things around the number issues. Like one was... Um, one was uh, MNF is very keen on virtual mobile numbers, also called dual function numbers that can be used for both voice and SMS. And Renee pointed out that obviously SMS is used for um, a lot of business functions these days, like um, two-factor authentication, for example, appointment confirmations, tell me when pizza's about to be delivered, that kind of thing. And MNF wants essentially fixed line numbers to be SMS enabled, but Australia treats, um, treats fixed and mobile services as polar opposite, um, Renee said. And so his, his bugbear in particular was that, you know, it's been left to industry to sort out this issue. And he said that although Telstra and Vodafone are kind of on board, he, although he didn't name Optus, he basically said that Optus was holding back the process. And so the, the, the other issue that he really raised is um, around number porting and basically saying that there should be um, SLAs around porting timeframes. And I think this is particularly, particularly in the context of, um, of COVID where we did see a lot of the delays to numbers getting ported. Thanks for joining us, Rowan. Cheers. That's it for Comstay Live this week. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next week.